I was thinking this week, and in some ways it, it crept up on us. And in other ways, I was thinking it's about time, but we're finally in the last sermon <laughs> of our series this time in First Samuel. We're handle, handling it in thematic parts, and chapter 20 is uh, the last time we're going to be in First Samuel for a while. I had been wondering as I was coming up to chapter 20, I've managed to break up most chapters into multiple sermons, and so I wondered, well, are we going to be here for a while? But I think I got it all into one sermon. Um, But it is a big chapter, and I plan to go through all 42 verses, which is I know what you want to hear at the beginning of a sermon. But don't worry, I still have the same amount of sermon material in terms of my Word document. So please stand with me if you're able to, and let's read the... Word of the Lord together. We're just going to start with the first four verses as we stand. There we go. Well, maybe. (laughs) David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What did I do wrong? Now how have I sinned against your father so that he wants to take my life? Jonathan said to him, No, you won't die. Listen, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without telling me. So why would he hide this matter from me? This can't be true. But David said, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor with you. He has said, Jonathan must not know of this or else he will be grieved. David also swore, As surely as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, there is but a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, in the book of Samuel, David is anointed and is expected to be king, but we read today the beginning of a long run for his life. And how can he have hope that you've called him to be king whenever the very kingdom he should be reigning He is an outlaw and being pursued. And it speaks to us who know and trust that we've been invited into your kingdom, but we look around and we wonder where your kingdom is at. Help us today as we study these words that we would see that you are ruling and reigning, that your kingdom is in the midst of us. And help us to be bringing your kingdom into more and more fruition. Father, that where those around us may not have hope, we can have hope. So we just pray that whatever you desire to say today, you would have your way in our hearts and our minds. Say what it is that you want. And please move me out of the way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You, you may be seated. The last two, two, three times we've been together, we've... We've mentioned choices. We've talked about the choices that people have made concerning Saul. Michael, David's wife and Saul's daughter, chose to protect David. She lied to her father actually about David's whereabouts and actions. Saul has chosen and to live out and to live in the fullest this path in his life where despite being told that he's not to be king, he nevertheless rebels against God's word. 
and he suspects David as the next king, so he seeks to kill him. That was his choice. This is exactly what Saul told his son Jonathan that he would not do. 1 Samuel 19.6 says, Saul listened to Jonathan's advice and swore an oath, as surely as the Lord lives, David will not be killed. And whenever we went through this passage a few weeks ago, I brought this up. What is the word listened here? It's Shema, the same Hebrew word for that Jewish prayer. Hear or listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. But it, it is implying more than just listening or hearing, but it's attending to, agreeing with, being obedient to. Saul is an unstable man, and in this moment with, with Jonathan convincing him in 1 Samuel 19, Saul was on board. Uh, the reasoning of Jonathan's arguments were plain logic. He's going to use the same logic in our passage today, but it's really this. What has David done, Dad? <laughs> Why even seek to kill him? He's done more to protect you and to protect our nation, our kingdom, more than anyone else let alone the fact that he's never shown any animosity to you or his kingdom. So why sin against the Lord and against him and murder him? And it seems that Saul had come out of his madness and rage and he agreed for a time. Until the storm brewed in all the right ways again. Maybe I shouldn't use storm right now in dry weather. but <laughs> And suddenly the prospect of murdering David seemed right. David went to war. He was victorious. He sent the, the Philistines retreating, and everyone loved him all over again. And the giant slayer was running off the Philistines, and, and suddenly that jealousy crept in. That idea in Saul's mind, David is better king material than me. And so the solution of murdering him came in again. And then for the third time in David and Saul's relationship, Saul threw a spear towards David and David narrowly escaped. And this time a line is crossed. I think it's rather funny. I mean, if somebody threw a spear at me, maybe once <laughs> there would be a line crossed. <laughs> Apparently, I guess you give greater grace to kings. I don't know. But David's on the run. And this is when Michael lies for him. And then David headed to Samuel. Samuel anointed David in the first place. And I suggested that perhaps besides just seeking counsel from the Lord's prophet on the whole ordeal of being pursued by Saul, that perhaps David asked Samuel, you anointed me, so now would be a great time if I get to fulfill that, if I get to be king now. I don't know. But Saul's agents were sent to receive, uh, retrieve David. And whenever they came, that's whenever they were compelled by the Spirit to prophesy. And then Saul came, and he began prophesying unwillingly. And so David here likely takes his leave. We read again in verse 1, David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What did I do wrong? How have I sinned against your father so that he wants to take my life? See, sometimes you go to spiritual counsel for what's happening to you in a situation. But every time you're going to have to somehow return 
to that situation that you're seeking counsel about. I did this to my own pastor, and I get this as a pastor. There comes a time when, okay, let's talk about it. But assuredly, there also always comes a time when especially the pastor's like, we're done talking about it. (laughs) Either do something or don't do something, but there is no need to talk about it anymore. Right? I'm a writer, and I've written lots of emails, and actually I've filled lots of books at times with situations. And so I've been there, I've kicked a dead horse plenty of times (laughs) without doing anything else. For David, he's been to Pastor Samuel. He's had the counseling time. He's told him, Saul hates my guts. I've done nothing, anything to him, but I don't know what's up. Samuel's patted him on the back. Listen, he put his two cents in. Now the the talking to the pastor for pastoral support is done and David's got to return to the situation in the safest way he can. So it's the king's son. Why is he trying to kill me? What did I do against him? Jonathan said to him, No, you won't die. Listen, my father doesn't do anything great or small without telling me. So why would he hide this matter from me? This, this can't be true. We see here that Jonathan has really probably not been privy <laughs> to Saul's doings. Jonathan's probably still living back in 1 Samuel 19 where Saul had sworn to him that he would, try, that he would not try to take David's life. And what Jonathan is saying is what we Jonathans with the Sauls in our lives want to say. (laughs) What we want to believe about the Sauls in our lives. He's told me he's changed his ways. He wouldn't lie to me. He promised me. He swore to me. He told me I could trust him. And I'm trusting him. So this isn't true. Something's not matching up here, David. Jonathan probably knew Saul's past and knows what he's capable of, but he also wants to believe that his own father would not peddle back on his word. But David is the one who's running, and it's not like he's doing it for no reason. So he says, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor with you. He has said, Jonathan must not know of this, or else he will be grieved. David also swore, As surely as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, there is a step there is but a step between me and death david is saying the reason that you think your dad isn't capable of what i'm telling you that he's trying to do is because your dad knows that you and i are friends <laughs> see we we Saul's, we sometimes have a twisted way of trying to protect the jonathans in our life It's understandable for drug addicts. They convince the Jonathans, I'm clean, I'm sober, I'm not doing it. But in secret, when they have some time behind closed doors, well, what they don't know won't hurt them. Let this be a lesson they will know. (laughs) And so it's only easier to understand Saul's concealing things from Jonathan here. We'll see his true feelings on the matter later in the chapter, but for now... It makes sense. Saul is is saying to himself, I think David needs to die. Jonathan likes David, so I'm not going to tell Jonathan what I'm doing. Sometimes, Jonathans, we need to have the confrontations with David, don't we? David says, I'm about to die. The way things are going, that's how bad it is. And we read, Jonathan said to David, 
whatever you say, I will do for you. If we had a heart like this for the greater King David, much is packed in that, to that statement. Jonathan has doubts, but he's saying, you know what, David? You say this is happening, and I want you to know right now that I'm for you. But then he takes it further. What can I do to make this right for you? What do you need? And the implications are costly. Costly in terms of his own relationship with his dad. Costly in terms of the kingdom's stability. Costly in terms of life or death being involved. But whatever you say, I will do for you. How far are you willing to go for the greater King David? Can you truly say to him, whatever you say, Jesus, I will do for you. Careful. God wants to use those hearts. Those are disciples. Period. That's the truth. So you and I cannot squirm and say, well, what am I if I'm not there yet? Am I chopped liver? (laughs) I didn't say that. But the Bible says you're not a disciple. (laughs) A disciple lives crucified lives. Which says, not my will, but yours be done. Whatever you say, I will do for you. Jonathan has been confronted. He's had some assumptions, some very positive, maybe naive assumptions about his dad, but he's willing to do whatever David needs to be done. So now they hatch a plan to uncover the truth. Maybe David's getting confused by Jonathan's perspective. David could just easily ask, am I running for nothing? Did Saul just have another one of those snaps and another one of those moments? Should I return to see if Saul will in fact never throw a spear at me again? Was it three times and no more? And so whether it's David needing to know for certain or Jonathan needing to see the truth about his dad, these two men hatch a plan to uncover the truth about Saul and his intentions for David. We read, So David told him, Look, tomorrow is the new moon. The Old Testament tells us that Jews have a lunar calendar and the beginning of every month was anywhere from a two to three mil festival. Every month. And you thought the American calendars had too many holidays in a year. The, the Old Testament seems to play it up like Sabbath, but with a mill to celebrate the new month. Yeah, we have potlucks. And that's only one, two hours maybe. <laughs> David, because we're fast food nations. <laughs> David continues, and I'm supposed to sit down and eat with the king. Perhaps the palace would have the entire king's staff, as it were, together for the meal at the beginning of the month. Instead, let me go and I'll hide in the countryside for, two, for the next two nights. If your father misses me at all, say David urgently requested my permission to go quickly to his hometown, Bethlehem, for an annual sacrifice there involving the whole clan. We're not told if David has really been invited for such an event or if David's just using an untrue excuse for his absence. But we're also not let in on the ethics of this from the author, so I'm not going to dive into it either. If he, Saul says, good, then your servant is safe. 
But if he becomes angry, you will know that he has evil intentions. It's an interesting measure. But it is a measure of Saul's heart. Right? If he understands me, if he wants me to maintain good relations with my family, if he shows grace and understanding and not hostility, then I'll buy into what you're saying, Jonathan. I'll buy that he's not dwelling on me being dead. But if he becomes angry and is so concerned about my absence, I'm going to take it as an omen because he's upset I'm not around for him to take another attempt on me. But because David knows he's not just talking to Jonathan, but he's talking to the king's son, he continues, deal kindly with your servant, referring to himself, for you have brought me into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I have done anything wrong, then kill me yourself. Why take me to your father? Back in 1 Samuel 18, we read that Jonathan, for all intents and purposes, admitted to David, yielded to David, and said to David without words, but with actions, here is my armor, my sword, they're yours to conduct. In other words, he's saying, you are the leader. Indeed, I believe Jonathan knew and was saying that I trust that you're the next king which is saying quite a bit whenever you're saying that as the current king's son. We're also told that Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as himself. Now, whenever I preached this, I talked about then how many people use today's culture to weigh into about the type of relationship that Jonathan David had. That is, they wonder if they were homosexual And that says more about our culture and less about the reality of David and Jonathan's relationship. Back in the story, David has just made some damning statements about Saul. And he has told Jonathan to test Saul on it. But then David says, in essence, if I have done wrong, if I do anything, or if I do deserve anything coming to me, by all means, my life is in your hands. We are the ones in covenant Right? Not Saul. I'd rather die from your hands for transgressing anything in our covenant than in Saul's hands. That's the idea. No, Jonathan responded. If I ever find out my father has evil intentions against you, wouldn't I tell you about it? Or as it says right here, wouldn't I tell you about it? (laughs) Verse 10. Making sure you wake up. So David... Ask Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? So David is saying, we have this great plan to uncover the truth. If he asks where I'm at, you give him the answer I gave you. Who's going to tell me if Saul does answer you harshly if he does want to kill me? How am I going to get that information? Well, I'll text you, David. No, just <laughs> Verse 11, he, Jonathan, answered David, come on, let's go out to the countryside. So both of them went out to the countryside. By the Lord, the God of Israel, I will sound out my father by this time tomorrow or the next day during the new moon feast. If I find out that he is favorable towards you, will I not send for you and tell you? In other words, if dad's okay with you, I'll retrieve you. You'll be back at the table with the king in the cabinet in no time. 13. If my father intends to bring evil on you, may the Lord punish Jonathan and do so severely if I do not tell you and send you away so you may leave safely. We kind of have a similar, less proper saying sounding today. Basically, Jonathan is saying, I'll be damned if I don't get you to safety. (laughs) 
Then Jonathan throws in another admission or a confession of David being king here. We might miss it, but he says, May the Lord be with you just as he was with my father. Now we saw this in the book. The author of 1 Samuel said, Now the Spirit of the Lord had left Saul. Or, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. So it's likely that the author and Jonathan in this story here know that in order to be king over God's people, you need God's Spirit. (laughs) And so Jonathan is really again, without direct words, saying, You are the king. Verse 14 Jonathan continues, if I continue to live, show me kindness from the Lord. But if I die, don't ever withdraw your kindness from my household, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Now, in that day in surrounding nations, they didn't have bitter political disputes, political campaigns. And you said, oh, I wish I lived then. No, you don't. Because whenever the other party got in power, they just killed the other party. And you're like, no, I really do wish I lived back then. No. Um, And if you do, shame on you. But uh, Jonathan is saying, don't do that to my own family. Don't do that whenever you come into power. And you you will find in 2 Samuel 9 that David does keep that covenant. Verse 16, then Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord hold David, David's enemies accountable. So this is actually a blatant show of solidarity and unity with David as king. And I would say even potentially damning to Jonathan's own father, King Saul. May the Lord hold David's enemies accountable. And right now they had been only talking about one enemy of David. Sure, the army's after him, but that's because King Saul ordered it. And chapter 19 went to great lengths to tell us that Jonathan liked David, Michael liked David, and then there's these universal statements. All of Israel liked David, the palace liked David. Well, Jonathan says he wants the Lord to hold David's enemies accountable. And it kind of recalls Jonathan's hesitancy, maybe shock, maybe a little disbelief in the first place. He used that general term, David's enemies. Certainly, his dad isn't trying to kill him. But Jonathan is going to abide by his word because we know Jonathan. In verse 17, Jonathan once again swore to David in his love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. Then Jonathan said to him, tomorrow is the new moon. You'll be missed because your seat will be empty. Verse 19, the following day, hurry down and go to the place where you hid. On this day, the incident began and stay beside the rock easel. Easel translates as the word departure. It's kind of a foreshadow. Like, I wonder if David's going to be running or staying whenever he's standing next to departure rock. (laughs) That's kind of a, I mean, it's probably the literal name too, because as you're going out of town, that's the rock you go by. Verse 20, I will shoot three arrows beside it as if I'm aiming at a target. Then I will send a servant and say, go and find the arrows. Now, if I expressly say to the servant, look, the arrows are in this side of you, get them, then come, because as the Lord lives, it's safe for you and there is no problem. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord is sending you away. As for the matter, you and I have spoken about the Lord will be a witness between you and me forever. So David hid in the countryside. 
So that's the plan. We'll celebrate the festival. Dad asks about you, and I respond with the story you gave me. I'll see how he responds. When I get a chance, I'll come out here and pretend I'm target shooting my arrow. And we'll have two code phrases, David. If while my servant is retrieving my arrows and I tell them, hey, I think they're beside you, that means you're safe. But if I tell my servant, hey, the arrows are out further away, then you got to run, David. So that's the plan. And with that plan in motion, the author wastes no time. He switches scenes to the feast. And we pick it up in the middle of verse 24. Wow, I guess I skipped. There we go. Verse 24 at the bottom, it says, At the new moon, the king sat down to eat the meal. He sat at his usual place on the seat by the wall. He's a little paranoid. (laughs) There's no room for anyone to come up behind him. And you might be saying, oh, Kevin, come on. It could be a traditional seat for kings. And I'm just saying King Saul is supposed to be the first king of Israel. He's the tradition setter. So he's a little paranoid. Jonathan sat facing him and Abner. Abner is Saul's uncle and the commander of the army took his place beside Saul, but David's place was empty. Saul did not say anything that day because he thought something unexpected has happened. He must be ceremonially unclean. Yeah, that's it. He is unclean. If you look into the law, you can be unclean for many everyday reasons that we might just take for granted today. So, for example, if David, a warrior, had been near a dead body recently, he'd be ceremonial unclean. If he had touched anything dead or been around any unclean animals or had bled or anything, so it's not uncommon for people to be absent for special occasions because they were ritually unclean. That aside, this really isn't true, I think, on Saul's confusion on the matter. Like Saul had spent the previous week or month or, you know, had recently tried to pin David to the wall with a spear, sent agents after him, came himself after to kill him. Why in the world do you think David's not there, Saul? (laughs) Maybe Saul thought it would be like the first two times he tried to pin David to the wall. Surely David has forgiven me. Let bygones be bygones. I don't know what Saul is thinking. Maybe he's power hungry and expects people that he toys with to be at his beck and call no matter what. Maybe I should just chalk it up to the truth that Saul is mad, deranged, and what's logical to him as to wondering why a victim of all of his murder attempts is not at his table would not be logical to other people. (laughs) Verse 27, however, the day after the new moon, the second day, David's place was still empty, and Saul asked his son, Jonathan, why didn't Jesse's son, so that's kind of our first window into Saul's thoughts about David. He can't even use his name. Though at one point in time, the author did tell us Saul loved David. That was 1 Samuel 16:21. But why didn't Jesse's son come to the mill either yesterday or today? So here it is. Here's what David was hoping to reveal Saul's attitude. Jonathan answered, Dave, answered, David, unlike his dad, he hasn't forgotten his name. <laughs> David asked for my permission to go to Bethlehem, David's hometown. He said, please let me go because our clan is holding a sacrifice in the town and my brother has told me to be there. So now if I have found favor with you, let me go so I can see my brothers. That's why he didn't come to the king's table. 
So now the plan is unraveling. The statement has been made. What Saul says or does will reveal to Jonathan and eventually to David what his intent is. Then Saul became angry with Jonathan and shouted. (laughs) That's the answer. (laughs) Doesn't really take us by surprise. I know. Maybe first readers of the story might be thinking, well, was Saul having another mad episode? Is he going to stable out? Sadly, no. He became angry with Jonathan and shouted. First, he attacks his son personally. He becomes angry and shouts, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman. We have a similar statement in America today that I won't repeat. Secondly, he charges Jonathan... Correctly, I might add, that he has sided with David. He says, don't I know that you are siding with Jesse's son to your own shame? Saul says that this should bring shame on his son. You're you're, you're siding with my enemy, with the one who wants the throne. Thirdly, Saul, probably lying, but we don't know, he tries to induce more guilt on his son by saying he's shaming his mother. And to the disgrace of your mother. She'd be ashamed, Jonathan, that you're protecting this man. It's not only me you're offending, but your mom too. Your parents are disgraced by your actions. Always great for a child to hear. (laughs) But, just in case the guilt-inducing tactics don't work, Saul now heads to temptation and appeals to Jonathan's potential pride and greed. And he says... Every day, Jesse's son lives on earth. You and your kingship are not secure. (laughs) Now, the story tells us this, that Samuel has anointed David. Jonathan knows David is king. We know David is king. But Saul is still living in this fantasy land that it's all okay. He's king, and though there is no established protocol in Israel that children inherit the throne next, even so, Saul is saying, David's not only trying to steal my throne, he's stealing your throne before you've ever inherited it. His presence will always mean that your throne will not happen. You won't have its power, you won't have its money, all thanks to David. And it seems that Saul is the only one who's not come to grips with that, we've just witnessed Jonathan being more than okay with David becoming king. And now that Saul has attacked Jonathan personally, called him a traitor to his own shame and the shame of his parents, and has appealed to him to his pride and greed by reminding him of what he's losing, this great father and king that Saul is now barks an order that he expects his son to fulfill. Now send for him and bring him to me. He must die. See if you can right all your wrongs and make your parents proud for once. See if you can salvage your throne from the so-called friend you've had trying to take it from you. All this is, Saul is a sinner trying to protect his idol. Saul's idol is his position. And he's willing to attack his son. The best part hasn't even come yet, but attack and abuse his son. I'm 50 to 60% convinced likely that he's lying about his mom to bring him more abuse. Manipulate his son with self-interest. You ever want the throne? And Saul does this all for the sake of his own sin. Some of you have ever been there. 
Saul is a universe circulating around his throne. All of his actions and words are about he remaining king. This is sadly what our idols do. Sure, I just laid it out for you, all that Saul is doing to his family, especially to Jonathan. But Saul is probably blind to that. If you ask him, of course I love Jonathan, he's my son. Why do you treat him this way? Well, because my throne is in jeopardy. You mean the throne that God took from you, that forbidden throne that isn't yours? See, forbidden things in our lives that we love tend to have a way of sucking us in and creating collateral damage. This is a very graphic illustration. Nevertheless, it gets the point across. I recently read a book called Death by a Thousand Lies. It was a celebrity youth leader of the 80s and 90s. He said it started with being on a business trip in his hotel room alone. There was some pay-per-view pornography. And though he felt guilty about it, and he felt guilty every time he did, before too long it got riskier and riskier. Every time he was in a city alone, if he went to a strip club, who would see him? Certainly not his wife and three kids. If he went to a suspicious massage parlor, who would see it? And it got so bad, like Saul, he was unstable. Amazingly, people were still growing and coming to Jesus because of his ministry. And eventually, by the early 2000s, he's moving to Dallas to pastor his own church, which quickly became a megachurch. And in Dallas, he surrenders to his sin. He is Saul and he's throwing spears now. He starts leading a double life. He literally adopts another name and persona. And since he's a big name pastor, he goes on business trips. Wherein he really just goes to a hotel across Dallas somewhere away from his family and constantly commits adultery. And at the same time, he maintains his pastor position. And none of this phases him or what it does to his family or his church until finally one gal that he's meeting up with finds out his real name, his real position, and threatens to expose him unless he confesses everything himself. The idol was sexual gratification instantly. Collateral damage all around him. And collateral damage isn't things, it's people. It's relationships, it's trust, it's credibility, it's integrity. Things not easily gained, but easily lost in a moment. And it makes me wonder, friends, are there things in our own lives when pressed, like an idol worshiper, we have collateral damage waiting to happen? Are we Saul? What's our throne What's our idol? And if you find yourselves treating people you love like Saul treats Jonathan, then well, then that's kind of telling, isn't it? In fact, I wonder this. Is there conflict in your life, arguments that you have that if you really thought about it, really soul searched that maybe, maybe the conflicts and arguments aren't as much about what they seem to be on the surface, but really your idol is being threatened? Saul wants Jonathan to retrieve David, and Jonathan proposes a logical response. Jonathan answered his father back, why is he to be killed? What has he done? (laughs) 
That was his point before. David's done only good for the kingdom and for Saul. He doesn't deserve this. But because Saul is not dealing with logic, he's dealing with idolatry and addiction to what he wants. Then Saul threw his spear at Jonathan to kill him. So he knew that his father was determined to kill David. Any Saul's in here? I hope it doesn't get this bad. Saul wants his kingdom so much that he's not only trying to kill who he illogically perceives to be his threat, but his own son, if his son gets in the way. Jonathan's not a son anymore in Saul's eyes. Just another threat, another addition to his potential enemies. Because it's all about Saul and it's all about Saul on the throne. I don't know if we know this, but if any of us are Saul's with a phone problem, it's not about you. (laughs) It's not all about you. There are people, real, live people who you might be hurting right now or you will hurt, and it's not all about you. Saul's, we need to get over ourselves and over our thrones because it's not about you. A few Years back, there was a string of robberies up here. Why? People with drug issues. And it's a sad, striking illustration that a person wants their addiction so much that they're willing to, to harm other lives or livelihoods for it. But even if it strikes them in a while, hey, this probably isn't the right thing to do. Oh, well, they do it anyways because they're idle and their addiction. It's not about you, Saul, but rather we see a great example in Jonathan here. He, Jonathan, got up from the table fiercely angry and did not eat any food that second day of the new moon, for he was grieved because of his father's shameful behavior toward David. Do you hear the source of his anger and grief? It's not about he being attacked from his father, less about he potentially losing his life. It's more about his father's shameful behavior towards David. And I want to say this, Saul's, it's not about you. It's about the greater King David. If we're Saul dealing with a throne problem and addiction and idol, we need to be about the business of the greater King David, King Jesus. Like Jesus talking to the woman at the well, we need to stop coming to the wells that leave us thirsty for more. Let it go and partake in the living water, Jesus. We need to stop dwelling on, defending, attacking to protect our idols and our thrones and just listen to the word of God already. Saul, your throne is gone. It's done. It's no more. Let it go and leave it be. Give it up. Why fight anymore? Is the fight worth it? Are the sins that you or I conceal worth it? Are there things that we really, really want? And hey, don't tell me what to do and I'll fight if you get too close. You shut up and stop meddling. Is all that worth it? Does it make you or me a better person that we have it? Is your throwing spears at potential opponents, is that worth it? Jonathan's upset at his dad and says, yeah, dad tried to spear me, but it's more King David is anointed, dad. He's done nothing but serve you. He's served Israel. He's defeated Israel's enemies. He's humble and he's a servant and you want to kill him. That grieves me. 
And so at the end of our part two in 1 Samuel, right before the proverbial credits start rolling, we find that we have a king on the run. David was right. Saul wants to kill him. And so Jonathan has those coded messages in the bag. Arrow beside you means dad's okay with you. Arrow out further means go away. Verse 15, in the morning, Jonathan went out to the countryside for the appointed meeting with David. A young servant was with him. He said to the servant, run and find the arrows I'm shooting. As the servant ran, Jonathan shot an arrow behind him, beyond him. He came to the location of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, but Jonathan called to him and said, the arrow is beyond you, isn't it? Then Jonathan called to him, hurry up and don't stop, or as the ESV translates it, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. Jonathan is talking to his servant, but the urgency is really for David. (laughs) Get out of Dodge. Dad's lost it. He's hell-bent on murdering you. Jonathan's servant picked up the arrow and returned to his master. He He did not know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew the arrangement. Then Jonathan gave his equipment to the servant who was with them and said, Go take it back to the city. Even though they have coded language for David to make a fast escape, apparently Jonathan decides it's safe enough for a little farewell with his friend David. When the servant had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone easel, departure rock, remember? David got up from there and fell face down to the ground and paid homage three times. So here is the so-called threat to the throne, paying the proper homage to a member of the king's family. Then he and Jonathan kissed each other, a common custom in that culture for men to do. We do handshakes. Sometimes we'll do hugs. I'm glad I live these days and not in those days. (laughs) And wept with each other, though David wept more. Now, I know men were tough. We don't cry. But this is David who's been anointed as king realizing that he has to run from his would-be kingdom and from a king who wants him dead. It's almost like Abraham being promised lots of children while he's in his 70s without kids and a wife who is past childbearing age. God's promised me this, but uh, we're kind of in a worst-case scenario for that to happen. How can I be a king in a kingdom where I'm its number one fugitive? (laughs) Yeah, David wept more. I got it. Jonathan then said to David, Go in the assurance the two of us pledged in the name of the Lord when we said, The Lord will be a witness between you and me and between my offspring and your offspring forever. Then David left and Jonathan went into the city. The only hopes that David could hold on to when he's fleeing the city, fleeing the king of his one day should be his own kingdom, are the Lord and Jonathan. He's the son of the king. He's a covenanted friend. He's a good, godly man. Hey, if the heat is on and you're the victim like David, the Lord and his people are all you need. I just brought up Abraham. The word of the Lord was enough. And what Abraham was promised came to pass. What David is anointed for, he will fulfill, and he will not only be king of Israel, but will become the greatest king Israel ever has until the greater king David comes. 
What this means is that we have a king when the kingdom seems unattainable. And I mean that in two ways. First, in the general sense, then in the spiritual and personal sense. In the general sense, if you think the kingdoms of this world, if America is bad, that you know these leaders propose ungodly platforms and policies and, and those powerful people are censoring kingdom values and propagating anti-Christian messages and the church's influence seems null and void, you know what? The great King David spent years on the run, but his kingdom would still come. And when it came in power, it was the best kingdom for Israel. If you look around now and say, it is the world's worst scenario for King Jesus to rule and reign in his kingdom. Just know that you're looking around right now like Abram and his old wife Sarai, barren and childless, wondering where the promised children are. You're looking around like David next to Departure Rock, crying his eyes out, out on Jonathan. That's where you are in the timeline. Personally, we have a king when the kingdom seems unattainable. If you got gut punched today with conviction because you realize, I am Saul. <laughs> I am hurting people because I'm so consumed with this idol and you worry because you know how Saul's story ends and it's not with a kingdom and it's not on the king of kings' good side. Friends, God's kingdom is still attainable for you when it seems unattainable by the blood of Jesus Christ and by the power of His Spirit. I'm so glad that God put two main characters in the Bible named Saul. There was another Saul in the Bible who pursued, persecuted, and may have even taken part in murdering followers of the greater King David, King Jesus. And by God's grace and God's power and God's Spirit, Saul was saved from a life in hatred and persecution and empowered for a life of godliness, missions, and ministry as the Apostle Paul. You don't have to be Saul of the Old Testament. You can be Saul of the New Testament and surrender today. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's easy to read the Bible quickly. And sometimes we want to focus on the good characters. We want to see good prevailing and we read over the enemies and the bad guys like we read over other stories. We just don't like them, but we don't think about it too much. Because if we start thinking about it too much, it seems like we can relate more, at least I can relate more, to the villains in the Bible than the good guys. And at the end of the day, your word really presents us with a picture of two categories. One category, bad people, and that's where everyone belongs. Another category, good person, and his name is Jesus. But thank you for the truth of your word that Jesus saves bad people. Father, that we're all sinful, that we all have idols in our closets, we all have things that we do. Help us to see the urgency that the collateral damage that's going to happen involves real people, real relationships, integrity, credibility. Father, we just pray that you would help us to surrender that to you. Help us to come clean, to seek your forgiveness, to live a new life in Christ. Help us to not live like Saul of the Old Testament, but Saul of the New Testament. 
Father, we love you. We thank you. We ask that you would use this truth in our lives today and in the weeks to come. We pray for those who couldn't be with us, that you would speak to them in spirit and truth. We pray for rain and wisdom for the firefighters and that you would protect them as well. In Jesus' name, amen.